special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the BrandoCast. And as we round the corner on 2020, ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is an actual writer. A million people in Los Angeles and New York call themselves writers, but only a few actually make money doing it. And my guest today does. He is a writer, a showrunner, and a goddamn drummer. He's written on everything from The Daily Show to Kathy Griffin to Practical Jokers, and he's currently a producer on Late Night with Seth. What's his name? He is also a very real drummer, as I said before, and he's even toured with Pearl. That's Scott Ian's band with his wife, Pearl, a day. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Mr. Eric Lederman. Da, 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 eh. Is that your theme song? If I had one, it, st- it started off great. A lot of potential and support. And then it's like, it's fine. <laughs> uh, may I may I congratulate you, sir, for wearing... Is that a Lamb of God hoodie that you're wearing? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I wanted to support um, visually all my the bands I love on this audio medium with a free piece of swag someone in the band gave me. All right. Shout out to Lamb of God. Uh, we, we brought Mr. Eric Lederman on today to talk about the band Metallica, a band that some of you may or may not have heard about. But before we get going on the Brando cast today, spoiler alert, Eric and I are going to talk about The Mandalorian for a second. Oh, yes. Are you caught up with the current episode, sir? Of course. And I um, I don't know about you, but I fucking stood up from my couch that's too low to the ground with my 6'4 frame. I stood up off the couch, which isn't, again, no easy task. And I fucking cheered for last <laughs> night, yes, yesterday's episode. There was so many. How hard is it? How hard was it to just like think about the actual nostalgia and then push the envelope a little bit? We're, we don't want much. And they just, they've done it again. It's crazy how into it I was. I was ecstatic. I'm sure you were the same. Anyone I talked to is ecstatic. It is. They have taken what we love so much that was ruined by some older men and brought it back into the realm of awesome. And to make Boba Fett a hero, like, what? What are you doing in my brain? It's just when he when he stepped out of the slave one. First of all, we're seeing. I think we I, I, we spoke about this briefly another time. But all these amazing characters that were so one dimensional and just looked cool. Now they're actually. It's like, oh wait, we should do something with these characters. It's like, oh yeah, he doesn't have to be a heel. You know, he can actually come in and do stuff. And there's and there's an unlimited well now, you know, the, the vortex of characters that they can do this with. And I am psyched for all these new shows and all this shit, because I feel like at least half, more than half of them will be good. That's over 500. That's my prediction. We'll be, that was actually pretty good. So you were down with the Disney investor report that came out this past week. How come it's just like Airbnb or any of the other things? It's like you hear Airbnb's got an uh, Airbnb is an IPO coming up. Disney's going to announce some shows coming up when tomorrow. So like you would think, I'd be like, I'm going to go invest. I wish my brain worked like that because I guess th- those numbers apparently the Disney numbers like, oh look at Disney now, they're rich. I'm like now. <laughs> they're still laying people off so don't worry everyone everything's fine oh well hey fuck disneyland all i care about is marvel and star wars so if you're giving rosario dawson her own show as a show katano that is a nerdgasm that will last uh for decades to come so into it i don't even care about like clone wars that much or anything with that like anything prequel derivative or graphic novel alt universe stuff derivative like legends of the old republic anything offshoot but like okay 
now, now I'm genuinely interested and now I'll go back and I'm, I'm invested for all these pieces to finally come together. It just isn't that hard. I think all the nerds out there dissect this stuff. Finally, we got someone in there who's doing something like it's, it's just not that hard to do just to make it interesting. And they've done it. So I'm, I'm glad it's, it's come to this. I'm very pleased. Don't you think that the brain trust uh, that's in charge of everything right now basically went to you and McGregor and said, okay, dude, we fucked you. Well, not not us, but the people before us kind of fucked you pretty hard For with, sure. with Obi-Wan back in the day. Come back to us. Let's do a limited series. Let's mm-hmm. do this fucking right. And let's put you on the top shelf with everybody else. And, oh, hey, Hayden Christensen, come on back, too. We'll make you cool again. I'm genuinely, I mean, Hayden Christensen, we can sit here and nerd out and say like, he was good, he was bad. Everyone knows he wasn't good. But, like, he was. he wasn't, like, working with great shit. You know, he was working with, again, Lucas is great at concepts and he created the whole universe. It's like, and now you're going to actually have someone who's probably going to push him in the director's chair. And also we're going to put a mask on him, which is great because emoting is not his thing, which is totally (laughs) fine. It's just not. He had Natalie Portman there and they both like turned to stone. It's like they were each working with their own Medusa and like they look at each other and it's straight up Clash of the Titans. They just didn't know. They forgot how to act. But now I think that he's probably had some time to reflect he's older and wiser. And I actually think the mask and being in that costume will really will help. We'll actually get, we'll get more emotion out of him with that costume than we would with him being like, Oh, geez, I'm mad. I'm ready for this Jedi stuff. Why don't you give it a chance coach? Like, let's go. I feel like he was on a good show with a horrible showrunner back in the day. And now, now he's on a good show with a great showrunner. And, and I, I give it a chance for nerd redemption. And I am I'm so excited that we have these smart people who I feel like are kind of like similar in age to us who have a have a, a better understanding of storytelling. And you want to know what happened to Obi-Wan Kenobi between exile and the day he meets fucking Luke Skywalker. Go. Well, what was he doing? <laughs> What's he doing in there? Such a small, he was in a very small space. That is a, you know, did he make, I don't know if like he made that place himself. I want to see like the choices, not maybe like, you know, not interior decorating, but like, I want to know like how he was out there. If, if he ever like came in contact with Boba Fett, just wait till we see that origin story of Boba Fett getting out of Sarlacc. Just yeah. crawling out of that pit, his armor obviously like ears spit out by you know spit out by a Sarlacc monster, and then picked up by Jawas, and then seeing him like with his face all fucked up, you know maybe Obi Wan finds it. Maybe they could easily connect Obi Wan to like getting Boba Fett out of there. Who knows? There's a million things that could happen, and there are smart. Just like you said, there are smart people in charge, or just people who really care about the franchise. I don't know JJ Abrams. I don't, I don't care. You know, I'm never going to work with him, uh, but I'll just tell you, it's like he had it right in the palm of his hand and who knows what he was directed to do. Who knows what his, the ultimatums or mandates or protocol he had to file. But like now they finally realized enough and their pocketbooks probably got hit enough. for like, Oh, we probably should just bring the nerds in. And that's why we have Favreau and um, what's his name? Filoni. Filoni. Filoni in who's just like watching all that BTS stuff of him. I'm like, God, like, why did this take so long? Why did this take so long? They have six movies. And I, I, again, I'm sure you'd agree that the prequels are much more watchable than the, the last three Star Wars uh, canon movies. The prequels now actually aren't horrible to watch. You can watch them now and be like, there's great potential here. It's not executed well, but like, 
you can't watch the last three movies. You can't. And anyone who went with their kids, like, oh, I brought my kid. I'll bust post in on this too, because they'll be like, oh, I brought my kid. We loved it. My buddy Scott brought my kid. He loved it. So he, I'm like, did you like it? Yeah, it was actually pretty good. Fuck you. No, it wasn't. <laughs> you know it wasn't fucking good. And you're doing it for your kid, and that's great. So say it with your kid in the room, and you're talking to me now. We're friends. You know it's garbage. Get out of here. Good follow that movie. Any of them. I feel like part of the problem is always Mickey. Because you know when when the executives go to Mickey and say, "Mickey, here's what we're gonna do," you know, Mickey, you know, he's his his sensibility is rooted in the 20s and 30s, so he might go, "I, I don't understand." I don't understand what you guys are pitching me. It really sounds like garbage. I just want to see. I, I just want to see. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he's been of a problem. Course. And I think that maybe they've been able to, like, push him aside and just say, Mickey, we're going to make so much fucking money for the next 50 years if we do this stuff right. You know, if you will let us, if finally, after all these decades, if you'll let us just handle things as we know we can. And You're I feel right. like that's what's happening right now. The, the buck stops with Mickey, right? Okay, so that's yeah. that's that's for sure. But that branding and that halo that's been around that brand has always been there. But now it's much easier to see how everything works and how much more sanitized it is with stockholders and all these things that people rail about and complain about that take precedent over the creative process. But now, now it's like, oh, there's no choice. Like it kind of started off rocky, you know, like the whole gal, you know, galaxy's edge. It was a little rocky. They said theme park attendance is down. The movies like weren't great. Mandalorian save, save this franchise. No question. It saved the franchise. I'm buying toys again. I'm buying, I'm buying toys again for the first time. And let me tell you, people are so ecstatic for this for me. When I tell them, oh, they are riveted. Oh, that's great, Eric. Tell me more about uh, the vintage collection line you're getting so you can have that line match the new Millennium Galaxy's Edge uh, uh, Millennium Falcon so those things can work in tandem. Tell me all about that. And I say, okay, well, how much time do you have? And also, why is Target uh, not shipping things in the correct boxes? I mean, I'm completely, <laughs> I'm completely invested again, and I have the uh, the throwaway bullshit money to do it. And so that's that's how they get people like us back in now. And it's all thanks to Favreau, Filoni, and, and Mandalorian, and the people who I'd assume let them do their job, which is and I, and big, I think big kudos. We've been shitting yep. on things for decades now. We got something good. We should be happy. I, I have been, I think it's also Kevin Feige, not to go into nerd talk about Disney uh, behind the scenes, but I think it's also Kevin Feige. All right. The only thing more important to me and Mr. Eric Lederman than Disney and all that nerd stuff. My God. I have some Metallica stories for you today, kids. Yes. Yes. Today on the Brando cast with Mr. Eric Lederman, we are breaking down Metallica. Metallica is an American heavy metal band. The band was formed in 1981 in Los Angeles by vocalist guitarist James Hetfield and drummer Lars Ulrich, and they've been based in San Francisco for most of their career. The band's fast tempos, instrumentals, and aggressive musicianship made them one of the founding big four bands of thrash metal alongside Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer. Metallica's current lineup consists of founding members Hetfield and Ulrich, Longtime lead guitarist Kirk Hammett and bassist Robert Trujillo. Guitarist Dave Mustaine, who went on to form Megadeth after being fired from the band, and bassist Cliff Burton and Jason Newstead are also former members of the band. Okay, Metallica, when I asked you, sir, to take a part in this dumb little podcast, you said Metallica. What does Metallica mean to you? 
Metallica is my transition from cock rock to liking music. Cock rock slash glam metal was the pop music for my generation. And I think it's important to point out, I've listened to a bunch of these episodes and you have your friends first and foremost on the show who, and some of them cross over in my world, who are friends and I'm kind of in the middle. So I'm in this weird generation where you guys are like, oh, glam metal's lame. And I'm just like, well, this is my first, you know, after 80s singles like Breakfast Club and all these 80s singles and Men at Work and all the weird stuff that was coming out at the be, you know, the beginning of MTV, there wasn't really a genre. There was a style of music that was hitting all um, genres of music. And then glam rock comes along, and I'm so into that, and I could talk about that in a whole other episode. But basically what broke me out of glam rock is listening to the Garage, Garage Days re-revisited EP on my buddy's, uh, in my buddy's uh, house, who's an army brat, in um, sixth grade. And I was like, it instantly, it was like that, you know, halo moment, that, that magic light coming down, that fucking metal light blinding me. And I couldn't, I, from there, my entire life path um, has been really dictated by Metallica and everything from there. Because I really, before grunge, it was all thrash. And Metallica defined that and really started my musical awakening um, in, in that moment, in, in around sixth grade, I believe, yeah. Is that when you started to play drums as well? The year before was fifth grade, and that was two years after I was like, I had seen Bon Jovi, which was my first concert. And that Bon Jovi was not just a band that was big. Bon Jovi, now don't forget, assholes, it was a zeitgeist moment, whether you like it or not, because J-Bon wrote sick tunes. I'm talking like 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit, self-titled record. There's great songwriting there. And whether you like it or think it's lame, you all the other metalheads are shit on me. It's like, those are great songs. And that's why he has a career, a 30 year career plus, but all that stuff was like, it all just, it all just went away for me. Really. I mean, I still listen to all that glam rock stuff, but when Metallica came out on the scene, it was like, it wasn't like black Sabbath for me. Wasn't made until later. It was just into Metallica and like Megadeth and Testament, but Metallica forever leading, leading the charge, like, which was something my generation, it was even like before Injustice for All. Remember, it was between puppets and, um, uh, 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 and Justice that I got into them. And then Black Album, of course, which we'll talk about, which blew everything wide open. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just keep rolling because we have a lot of ground to cover with Metallica. Metallica was formed in Los Angeles in late 1981 when Danish drummer Lars Ulrich placed an advertisement in the Recycler. Holy Christ, folks! I bought a used, <laughs> I bought a used postal jeep out of the Recycler, which read "Drummer looking for other metal musicians to jam with: Tigers of Pantang, Diamond Head, and Iron Maiden." James Hetfield from Downey answered the ad. Although he had not yet formed a band, Ulrich asked Metal Blade Records if he could record a song for the label's upcoming compilation album, Metal Massacre. Ulrich then asked Hetfield to sing and play rhythm guitar in the band. The band was officially formed on October 28, 1981, five months after Ulrich and Hetfield first met. Dave Mustaine replied to the band's next advertisement, 
for a lead guitarist, and Ulrich and Hetfield recruited him after seeing his very expensive guitar equipment. In early 1982, Metallica recorded its first original song, Hit the Lights, for the Metal Massacre compilation. The song generated strong word of mouth, and the band played its first live performance on March 14, 1982, at Radio City in goddamn Anaheim, along with newly recruited bassist Ron McGovney. Metallica was then chosen to open for British heavy metal band Saxon at one gig on Saxon's 1982 U.S. tour. Uh, quick side note, Eric, Saxon is one of my favorite bands of all time because I, really? I swear to God, I was born in Pittsburgh, but my mother moved us to New Mexico when I was 12. I get to New Mexico in 1980. New Mexico, I've said this on this uh, podcast a billion times, and if there's a drinking game built around the show, get ready to drink people. Uh, New Mexico is a heavy metal state. Mm -hmm. Metal rules the day. So our local radio stations uh, were not like KLOS. They played Saxon, Made in Rush. They played Billy Joel, Eric Clapton, The Doors, Beatles, Rolling Stones. But they went deep on album cuts for uh, Dio, Ozzy, Priest. And Saxon was huge in Albuquerque. And I know that Lars Ulrich loved uh, Saxon because they were sort of that one of those early bands that brought heavy metal out of that sort of like FM rock and into more denim and leather and studs and, um, you know, let's worship the devil kind of stuff. Sure. The crazy thing about Metallica, like a lot of people don't know that, um, not to nerd out of Metallica, but that Dave Mustaine. Yes. Was no, in- yes. Yes. To nerd out of Metallica. Let's not, we don't have to apologize on this podcast ever. Hey, for, you know what? You're right. You're right. You know what? Yeah. Hey, Fuck you people if you want an apology. I'm not apologizing for nerding out of Metallica today. If you if you're listening to metal your entire life, my entire life I can remember since third grade is apologizing or making excuses or just de- straight up defending why we listen to this music. And I've been doing it up I probably last week someone like said, Hey Liederman gave me the horns. It's like, is that sick? Like <laughs> some some like adults. And I'm just like we're still doing that fucking same bit where you're mocking heavy metal. Get out of here with that already. My uh, my Australian cattle dog, Django, uh, agrees with you. It has been a constant uh, stream of Amazon packages dropped off to my particular apartment building here in the City of Angels. So if the dog barks, that means someone is getting another thing from Amazon. Yes, I'm not going to apologize either. It's no. been a huge part of my life. And I will say it, this will come up later. But when I first saw Metallica, it was on the ultimate sin tour for Ozzy Osbourne. Oh yeah. Right. We'll talk about this as it comes down the line. Okay. But I remember in that, I will just say this quickly. I remember in that moment going, Holy fucking shit. That's the edge. I am what I am witnessing the edge of metal music right now. As fat Ozzy stumbles across the stage and tries to sing bark at the moon. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, I love I love Fat Ozzy. I love Thin Ozzy. I love Fat Ozzy, Old Ozzy, Young Ozzy. I love Ozzy, but 1986 Ozzy, I think, sometimes struggled to get to the microphone. Yeah, but man, he he still he still looked good, and he always managed to own whatever state he was in. And honestly, anyone who's ever said anything shitty about Ozzy's voice, you know, every vocalist has off nights. But like that guy, even like the, the last, I think it was summer 2019 when I saw him, and Zach is back playing guitar and. He sounded fucking great. What do you? What, the guy's he's not he's no he's no baby, and he's getting up there. It's like oh he doesn't move as much. It's like man, it's just like any other like nerd. It's just like dude, get this guy a break. He's killing it. He's playing heavy metal. He's not up there, you know, just like 
with, you know, leaning on a piano with a glass of champagne quietly. He's playing heavy fucking metal music. That's why we're here, assholes. Jesus. <laughs> I Not to be morbid, but. Oh, please. It's metal. We've lost a few people this year. We lost yeah. Eddie Van Halen. We've lost Neil Peart. And I wish and I hope that Sharon has a team of doctors and health uh, experts around Ozzy 24-7 because I'm not ready to let him go. And every time, you know, I wake up in the morning, sometimes I think, like, is this the day that Ozzy's going to leave the planet? You know what I mean? I know. She, you know, I, I've worked with Sharon, and I know her fairly well. And I will just tell you that she is one of my inspirations uh, in my career. And she also um, understands heavy metal and the culture and the fans. And I know with all their ups and downs, all the public nature of their ups and downs, I know at the end of the day that she always is like taking care of that guy. There's all those rumors like Sharon's putting Ozzy out on the road. It's like, what do you think? Ozzy doesn't want to be out on the road. It's just like Sharon knows how important it is. Of course, they're going to make a ton of money. That's fine. But it's like Sharon, I, I firmly believe from this relative, pretty out, still, uh, still uh, outside enough perspective that uh, Sharon is doing what's best for Ozzy and we, we still have more Ozzy to come. I still think that tour, all this, the, there was a tour or two that was canceled because of the pandemic. I think we're going to see Ozzy hopefully next year, but definitely 2022. I don't, he's not done. I mean, think all, think all the no more tours tours, how many there were. <laughs> and he came back and the next one was like always better. Or like when the set list was always interesting and the last Ozzy record kicks ass and like ordinary man, come on, Elton and Ozzy. What's not to yeah. love. It's great. What's that? Little Green Men. That's a great song off the new record. Oh, man. Tell me about. Okay, let's double back to something here because you just you just sort of tossed it out there and just kept moving. Tell me about working for Sharon Osbourne. What was that situation? I was the I've done a lot more producing than I have writing. Although I appreciated your intro, but I've always um, been hired on writing gigs in between my longer term producing jobs. And as we all know, we're always lucky just to get work. And um, each job is, <laughs> oh, it's leapfrog. We're in a leapfrog business. Um, but at the time I was freelance before I moved to New York for late night. And there are these rock and roll roasts that were happening. And the first one was for Zach to be roasted. And Sharon was the roast master. And my buddy Josh, who um, used to be at Revolver and now is working with Hip Raider and stuff, he's very ambitious about doing these big metal events. He hired Posein to host the golden God awards. And Brian brought me in to write, be like the writer. Like they didn't like, you know, Josh has, you know, figure, figure out a lot of stuff now. And he's, he's great. But at the time, like he hadn't done uh, an award show of this caliber. It was big. Set the Nokia theater in LA and he had to like do an award show. So he brought me in and I've done a bunch of this stuff at this, at this point. And together, like we pulled this off and, you know, Josh had to deal with like, you know, the, the vast majority of everything, but I was in charge of the writing and getting jokes for Brian, all this stuff. And so that spun into these roasts. So we have a roast for Zach. Sharon's the roast master. I'm the head writer. We have a nice tight room. I think Ken, da I don't know if Ken Daly was in that room or not. I think Ken maybe came in for D Snyder. I forget, but people like from comedy, you know, coming in to like do roast for metal people who think don't really understand always what a roast is. And there's a lot of people on the dais who did not, but let me tell you who fucking did and listened to everything I told her and completely trusted in a stranger, you know, to just tell to, and leaned on them. It was Sharon Osborne. She goes, okay, darling, tell me, to, like, let, let me hear the jokes. And I'm not going to do an English accent because I, she's amazing. And I go, here's all the jokes I have for you. I don't think they're, they're I don't remember at this point, maybe she killed a joke or two, but like, I'd already whittled it down to like the best shit. 
And I, I wrote mostly everything for Sharon and then contributed all the other, the, the roasters that came up. But Sharon was like, that was my, mostly my stuff. So I'm like, man, if she doesn't like this, I'm fucked. And she, and then I told her like, I go, here's what a roast master does. Got it. Got it. Got it. And not only did she get it, I can't believe she hasn't done another one since. I don't know where that exists, but she fucking slayed. She had the exact right demeanor. She was in total control of the entire dais. And she was just a fucking professional and she killed it and she killed it. And it was such a joy. And think of all the people like you've worked with in this business. And you're like, Hey, I know you hired me and pay me money for my opinion. And then they don't really want to hear your opinion, which is another, which is part of the part of the journey. Yeah. If I can say that shit because I hear it so much. And like every, when I go like, I don't know to get the whole foods and I just have a question about, you know, protein bars and I don't want to get into that deep of a conversation with someone about my diet and what I should be eating. But I will tell you that's, that to me was such, I'm like, she's such a pro. It was so eye opening just to see her absorb everything I gave her after being in comedy all the time where everyone's being like, they're judging you and it can be tough. And, and the wins are great wins, but most of the time it's like, no, this thing you created, I don't agree with it. Or this, this opinion on how to do something, I don't agree with it. And great. When you hit, you hit, but Sharon, it was like a home run. Grand slam with her. And that was so fulfilling to me as a fan of metal, first and foremost, and her career. And as a, as a, as a person who works in comedy and is supposedly, uh, uh, supposedly funny. So she, that was so amazing for me. And she slaughtered everyone up there. I'll have to send it to you. I got to find it. It's fucking amazing. And she's, she's just a wonder man. Big fan. Big fan. I, that is so tremendous. Uh, let me just say this. Uh, people listening know that uh, I co-host uh, Rock Tales on SiriusXM, Volume Channel 106, with Mr. Ahmed Zappa. And we had Sharon on about a month ago, and it was a life highlight for me. Right? It was so incredible because there she is on a velvet couch that I have seen a thousand times watching her at home on all the various and sundry Osborne things. I love her so much. I just respect the fuck out of her because she's got British mobster's blood running through her veins. She's Jewish. Such- Don't forget she- the Jewish part. The Jewish part, so important. Happy Hanukkah to everybody, by the way. Happy Um, Hanukkah, everyone. She's such a badass. And I was able to tell her that I was in the crowd at OzFest in 2006, I believe it was. The egg incident? The egg incident. Me too. You were there. Okay. Yes, I was. For people listening to the podcast, what happened was Iron Maiden Maiden was the co-headliner on that OzFest. Um, and I think that that was a Black Sabbath. Was that a Black Sabbath or was that an Aussie-led Ozfest? Two thousand six. Well, I saw, I remember seeing the Black Sabbath one in Camden when I still lived in LA in Camden, New Jersey. This one was in LA. I'm pretty sure it was. I don't man. I gotta say, I, I think it was Sabbath. I, I think it was Sabbath too. Uh, but the long story short was Iron Maiden is Iron Maiden is doing their set. Southern California fucking loves Maiden. I love Maiden. I should have a giant Eddie tattoo on my back. I do not because I have no tattoos, but I fucking love Maiden. They're my God, man. And throughout the set, the power kept cutting out. Power kept cutting out. And the guys in Maiden, I was I was like in the third row. They were getting really frustrated. Then at some point during the show, eggs started flying from sort of the pit area up onto the stage. <laughs> then at, at some point in the show, I heard Zach Wilde's voice over the PA going, Ozzy, 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 during a Maiden song. When the power cuts out and Maiden is in full flight on the Trooper and there's 25,000 metalheads in Southern California. It's a, it's a very jarring effect. And what happened was Sharon was mad at Bruce Dickinson because he had been 
He'd been bragging about maiden success on that tour, and he was slagging the Osbournes for having a reality show. And Sharon was pissed. So on the final night of the tour, she exacted revenge. Maiden finishes. When they finish, Sharon walks out from the other side of the stage. She walks to the front, grabs a microphone, and goes, The guys in Iron Maiden are our friends! And Bruce Dickinson is a fucking prick! And threw the mic down. And I remember... As a child of divorced parents, it was a it was a tough moment because Sharon <laughs> Sharon was asking Southern California to take a side, and oh we're all very confused because everyone loves Maiden and Ozzy equally. So, but like it was such a great night, and I was able to like share that with her, and she got excited about it, and she retold the story and how important that was, and 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 fuck Bruce Dickinson all over again. So she didn't back away from the story. Every um, time I've heard her tell retell a controversial story, whether it's in person or in the press, I'm always like, oh, that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, because I don't think she's like, I, I'm sure she can be difficult. I'm sure that she is a certain, like, you know, she has opinions about stuff. And I, I also think there's a lot of men out there who are just like, oh, it's a woman, like being just as assertive and aggressive as we are. And that's the lore that surrounded her. It's like, oh, she's a bitch. It's like, no, guys, like this is the original, like she's just one of the OGs and she happens to be a woman and she fucking every like and even NBC, all those stories. I'm like, oh man, like hearing her tell it, I'm like, I guess that's what happened Yeah, because I, I do think her honesty, she can't help it, which is a fucking awesome, positive attribute. I also believe it's true that she threw Fred Durst down a flight of stairs. Thank you, Sharon Osborne for the nookie. In late 1982, Ulrich and Hetfield attended a show at LA's Whiskey A Go-Go, which featured bassist Cliff Burton in the band Trauma. The two were blown away by Burton's use of the Wawa pedal and asked him to join Metallica. Burton accepted on the condition that the band moved to El Cerrito in the Bay Area, which they did. Metallica's first live performance with Burton was at the nightclub The Stone in March of 1983. In May of 1983, Metallica traveled to Rochester, New York to record its debut album, Metal Up Your Ass. The other members decided to eject Dave Mustaine from the band because of Mustaine's drug and alcohol abuse and his growing violent behavior. Exodus guitarist Kurt Hammett instantly replaced Mustaine, and Metallica's first live performance with Hammett was on April 16, 1983, at a nightclub in Dover, New Jersey. The support act was Anthrax's original lineup. Because of conflicts with its record label and the distributor's refusal to release an album titled Metal Up Your Ass, Metallica's first studio album was renamed Kill Em All and was released on Megaforce Records in the U.S. Although the album was not initially a financial success, it earned Metallica a growing fan base in the underground metal scene. And I remember as a young metal dude in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that in 1983, 1984, the dudes who listened to Metallica were dudes that you did, did not want to fuck with at all. Yep. Because they were the edge. That was the edge of music. And I think it's probably hard for people to like feel like what that was. That at one time, Metallica was the most dangerous band on the planet. I felt the same way in junior high at that point. Justice... And Justice for All is out, and there's a guy named Joey Olwine who was in eighth grade, and I was in sixth grade, and he had the Damage Incorporated shirt on, and he cut the sleeves off. And remember, we're in, like, the north suburbs of Chicago, where it's, like, 
probably like 60% Jewish and then the rest, and then it's like 20% like um, Latino, Italian, and then army brats. And of course I hung, I didn't like come around to my own people till, you know, Hebrew school three days a week or like at camp. Like I, during the school year, like I was with the metalheads and they're all like, like the nice Jewish kids. Like they were not, they were like into the wrong music. They were in like the pop music at that point. And all, all those army brats, all those fucking dudes of color, like were my friends and they were great. And I'm still in touch with uh, a handful of them to this day. And they were the ones who sing Metallica. And of course my parents, they were a little like, Hmm. But when Joey Owen had that, he was like, he, I remember he honestly, it's night. It's like early. Um, it's early nineties. It's like, and he's the guy carrying a leather jacket with two fingers over his right shoulder with damage incorporated and no sleeves. And he's like, he's buff. But that dude respected me. I never, he, it was never a thing where it's like, oh no, he's a bad guy. Yeah, I'm sure he smoked cigarettes and any of those things. But like, I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm on the right path here because this scares people and parents are afraid of it. And people forget people are fucking, you know, people's parents were afraid of the Beatles. They were, and this wasn't about like, um, you know, girls going crazy. This was about like suburban kids being angry and being like, this is awesome. Not knowing why they're angry, of course, but just being few, the energy of it was, was fueling. And I was like, Oh man, this is, this is my jam, but I, I wasn't a bad kid. It didn't make me act out. I just loved listening to high volume, thrashy, aggressive music at that point in my life. And nothing has changed. And I'm 44. So that, that area was golden, golden. And this is even like before one, this is like justice is out there on this massive tour they they have an insane number of dates in arenas, which are way bigger than they're supposed to be out according to everyone, but their management like pushed them, which turned out to be the best bet ever. And this is like prime time Metallica. And this is, you know, Metallica, I still say was scary through the black album because they, that's when they peaked in the, the cultural zeitgeist and, and units sold. They're still massively successful, but after black album, it became a thing. What is Metallica scary anymore? Because everything has to go that way. But they were still scary through Black Album, and that's something my generation. Black Album for me, you guys are all puppets. Puppets is your record, right? Yeah. Well, I I I have I have my own Black Album experience, which I'll get to. Please later. Let me just say, uh, if Breakfast Club really wanted to do it right, Judd Nelson should have been wearing a metal up your ass uh, T-shirt. That's too. But you're asking too much. I agree with you, of course. But you're you're asking too much. Of the again of the zeitgeist of the time, it's like Star Wars. Yeah. It's like who's gonna dig? Who's gonna really dig deep and find the underground thing? And if you don't hire like the right production or like costume people yeah. who know about stuff, I was talking about buddy who's doing a a metal movie too, and we were he was agonizing over some of the wardrobe choices because he wanted to be authentic. It's like is and honestly, always the most authentic thing you can really do. But if you can't nail the band, is just like wear a black t shirt, right? And like have the clothes fit a certain way that show, oh, I thought about this choice, but I didn't think about what my body would look like in these clothes. So I think that's that's the thing. Like it's it would have been amazing if 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 Judd was <laughs> but instead they just they played it safe and no one probably knew. I was like, what's Metallica? No one yeah, right. fucking knew. Not one person. <laughs> that's a fact. Not one person. Go to IMDB, look up every and Google every person on that fucking production list. None of them knew about Metallica when that movie's being made. I um, <laughs> they didn't. Agree. They didn't have Posein or you on. Uh, you know, as a PA. Uh, no, Metallica's like who? Well, li- listen to the kid. Me, listen to me. Whoa, that didn't fucking happen, dude. Let me tell you that I wrote on a TBS sitcom called My Boys. 
uh, a great friend of mine, Betsy Thomas, who's been on the show. She created the show. It was about a girl, Jordana Spiro, and her guy friends. Jim Gaffigan played her brother. Reed Scott from Veep played me. The character Brendan was based on me. I have been dressing the same way since 1980. Jeans or cords and a concert shirt. I just have a rotating, I have a closet filled with concert shirts, even vintage shirts from the 80s, even though my mom gave a whole fucking bunch of them to Goodwill. That's a separate fucking podcast. We can talk about our moms throwing away our metal shirts. Yeah. Uh, But on that show, I was able to basically tell the wardrobe, uh, you got a clear rush, you got a clear Iron Maiden, you got a clear, and a lot of times they did, and they would also, shout out to Carrie Smith, who ran the wardrobe on that show, uh, they would rent shirts from me, uh, so <laughs> Reed Scott, who went on to have a fabulous career on the show, uh, Veep, is uh, dressed in many decent concert shirts on the show, my boys. Back to Good. you, sir. Okay, let's. so you're in the North Shore of Chicago, are yes. we? Are we Glencoe, Glenview, Winnetka? Highland Park. Highland Park. All The hardest. Park. The yeah. hardest of the north suburbs, bro. By the lake where the temperature would fluctuate more. See? Three or four degrees sometimes. You don't fucking know what it's like. Fan goddamn-tastic. All right. So does young Eric Lederman of Highland Park, Illinois, yeah. does he have a band in junior or early high school? Fantastic question. It's the same band basically from junior high through high school. Whoa. It is the first name of the band is um, the chosen. Nice. I was still in junior high and the guys were a year older in high school. And that's when I was, they saw me, you know, they were all, we were all friends and we were doing like, um, you know, wild thing in the, in the backyard and for our parents. And they were, there's, I have video. Um, and that's kind of where it started. And I, just like Lars Ulrich, I, uh, who had the, the bear, um, the Denmark, it was like a, holding a, a Danish flag. And then I put Gumby, which shows you my <laughs> comedy roots and in, inspirational good, uh, roots, a giant Gumby though. Cause I didn't have like a small one. Um, now with my disposable income, I have Gumbies in several sizes and, um, material, uh, varying textures. So I took a Gumby that was probably about, um, two feet, uh, high and I strapped it in between my two toms because I just had a five piece Ludwig rocker kit. And then, um, I just strapped them in there. So I'm like, yeah, just like Lars with like my Royal blue Ludwig rocker too. And we played these shows in backyards and then evolved into rather fast when I got, um, I think that changed where I was still in elementary school to rather fast. And then, uh, high school comes around and the band is called crumb cake and it's pretty much the same except I think it's me, the vocalist and the guitarist, um, me and the vocalist always together and still one of my very close friends guy. Uh, then we get a new guitar player and a bass player. And we basically ride that through most of high school. The bass player swaps eventually. Um, but we are called crumb cake. We record our, a four song cassette with this guy, Davy Davy Trumpio, who is a, a fairly well-known producer at this point. I think King size sound laboratories. We were his first clients, a bunch of fucking like gr- at that point, grunge loving kids from the suburbs. And we did a four song EP and it's actually, it's not terrible. Original songs that you All original heard. stuff. Yeah. We evolved into like, and then we were playing homecomings and do like Nirvana covers. And I was like bringing like a double kick. My double kick playing was insane in high school and college because I wasn't thinking about it. And my self-awareness was like pretty minimal. And then when I got to the mechanics and realized I had a lot more to learn, it started getting bad. But, um, but yeah, but like ripping like double kicks, like in the wrong places. And, uh, but it was great. Like we played every homecoming. We, we played, um, 
every like, you know, after, you know, bat bash in the cafeteria and my, my, my vocal, the, my vocalist guy, his dad recorded pretty much most of our major shows on audio with very, very funny commentary and documentation, which I really appreciate to this day. But like, I, then I was surprised when I got to college and I formed a band, how few people had actually been in bands in high school and junior high. So I was actually like, pretty like well-versed and like, I like, I wouldn't get nervous anymore at shows. And like, I had my shit together. I was like, a, I really felt by the time I got to college, I was a professional in attitude. Wow. My playing always like my playing always was, yeah, but I was like, I'm like, and I'm a, I'm a television producer, like, and I'm better producer than I am a writer. So it all made sense. And that's why I'm not in bands. And I stopped playing in bands eventually original bands, uh, of uh, my own uh, musicality and, and musical compositions because I was the only adult and I'm like, guys, I'm on time for rehearsal. Where's everyone else? What do you mean you're sleeping here? I'll bring you some granola bars, but like I've got to pay rent too. I mean, like yeah. I wasn't cut out for this. Right. And I wasn't with I wasn't with people who treated it like a like a job and who came through with stuff and and there and we weren't, you know. So evolving through those times though, and they really did set me up for at least discipline, like work ethic, um, in in those junior high and, and high school days for sure. And I fucking loved it. But I just played everything too fast. What was a crumb cake's most lucrative gig? I don't think. Uh, well, I did play it. We did as rather fast. We played a just say no rally in downtown Highland Park at Port Clinton Square. And there was a song which um, basically the end of the chorus was, is it worth it to get high? And then it was like a and then to die. And then it was a really <laughs> it was really fucking up tempo. I mean, this is, this is the tempo. And it was really driving. And I was like, in the middle of like Highland Park, you know, North Shore. And people are like, yeah, people are probably bummed. But like we were rip, we were ripping it. And I don't even, we might have been paid for that. But I can't remember one dollar in junior high and high school ever. And it was, was like, oh, we're playing for beer. It wasn't like that. We were in the burbs. We'd go to Dunkin' afterwards and smoke a bowl. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, what are we, we're not doing anything. This isn't great. Metallica recorded its second studio album, Ride the Lightning, in Copenhagen in the early part of 1984, and it was released in July of the same year. That album actually reached number 100 on the Billboard charts. The band promoted the album with extensive touring in Europe and the U.S. and quickly built a reputation for being a powerful live band. Two months after the release of Ride the Lightning, Elektra Records signed Metallica to a multi-year deal and reissued that record. Metallica's third studio album, Master of Puppets, was also recorded in Denmark and released in March of 1986. The album reached number 29 on the Billboard charts and spent 72 fucking weeks on the charts. It went gold on November 4th, 1986 and was certified six times platinum 2003. Following the release of the album, Metallica opened for Ozzy Osbourne on the Ultimate Sin Tour, and my note to myself, which I wrote down in this fucking document, was I took Laura Gregg to see Metallica on May 13th, 1986. Quick story. So I have no idea how I was able to trick Laura Gregg uh, into going to Metallica, but my part of the story goes like this. She was a young princess of Albuquerque. Lisa and Laura Gregg were in my class the Albuquerque Academy, they were royalty. 
We all lived in fear of them because they were groovy and gorgeous and athletic. Um, but I went to a small private school, so we were all friends. Somehow I was able to trick this wonderful girl to go see Ozzy and Metallica. Of course, I was in love with her, but I did not have the, uh, the courage to tell her. But we go to the show. And like I said before, when Metallica hit the stage, that was the edge. And I will never forget the look on Laura Gregg's face. I'm sure the hardest thing that she'd seen to that point was either Rod Stewart when he came to Albuquerque in 1981 or maybe Journey, maybe Brian Adams. So for her to see this and James Hetfield right before uh, Seek and Destroy said, if the guy next to you isn't singing along with this song, grab him by the throat and rip his lungs out. You know, so it was like charged and crazy, but she went on. There's not, this is not a story with a beginning, a middle and an end, but she went on to write uh, an article in our school paper about going to see this show. You know, just sort of a popular girl who is somehow transported to Metallica at Tingley Coliseum. And it's just, I'll never forget that night because it was just so awesome. I wonder what her take was in that article. I bet it was just super flattering. She's like, a medal has arrived. Uh, I want (laughs) to thank Brenda for taking me and I want to be with you. Meet me at the bike rack at three o'clock as soon as you, you know, whatever day you're reading this and I'll be there waiting because you open my eyes to a whole new world of musical possibilities. Thank you so much. I'm sure she was so grateful. Well, it was all, you know, those metal shows in Albuquerque in the eighties, it was all the wretched refuse. Yes. The white trash, our Latino brothers, our native American brothers who love metal. Underrated. Yes. All the burnouts, you know, and Everyone showed up for Metallica, too, because Albuquerque knows metal. So it was the place was completely full before they started. And that was the first time of many times that I've seen Metallica. So shout out to Laura Gregg if you're listening. Okay, dude, you get yes. to college. You still want to play. Is there an official college band that you put together? The college band was a journey uh, and then some because it, we were an instrumental band. We could never find a vocalist because we thought we were that good. But they're really, we were, I, went, I was in, at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, which is the more interesting of the two big Iowa schools. There's Grinnell, which is, you know, a small um, art, uh, art school. And then there's um, uh, University of Iowa, which is where I went to, which is Big Ten, and um, Iowa State, which is in Des Moines where I actually did see Metallica once we drove out there and saw them there. That's what, that was the tour of the, um, I forget if it was, I think it was low tour, but it was a lot. That's when the stuff started uh, falling apart at the end of the show with like the lighting rig and all that. But um, yeah, the band was, I was like very like into three eleven in college and rush and all proggy complicated stuff with lots of parts. And that's when I got into maiden. That's when I got like, and then, but then like into pixies and like college rock that I had missed you know, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Melancholy was out then. Uh, these are like big, all these influences coming in. So my playing was different. It was a lot like out of splash cymbals, China cymbals. And so the, we never found a vocalist to like do these kind of groovy, like heavy parts with like, we made 80s songs, like 80s pop tunes, heavy. Everything was about being heavy and like, you know, getting the crowd to bounce, but we never had a vocalist. So no one ever gave a shit about us until senior year when everyone realized that it was like a fun scene. Cause we would do covers and originals that just made people not dance, but like guys could do this and, and uh, you know, bob their heads and be into it. And girls would be like, I actually like this. It's actually not bad. <laughs> and it was that thing. We're like, yeah, I told you. And meanwhile, we were horrible. And, and, and by the time the show ended, we really thought we were actually going to 
be around girls. It's like you smoke so much swag weave out of uh, four foot uh, plastic bongs and Newcastle's and Mickey's Big Mouse. You would just sit in the corner talking about, you know, any band at that point. And like, why do you think they made those choices? And those conversations went on for hours. And that's what the band experience was like in college, dissecting music because there was no parents around and no curfews. And the hours we spent listening to music and talking about stuff and putting those influences and decisions to work in our own bands. This, this single original band that I had was, um, that was just like the most creative and like loose time ever. And when, and that's when we got paid like you know, a couple hundred bucks here and there was probably the most we got paid for gigs, but it didn't matter. That was making flyers. That was joyous. That was like the greatest time. My parents was like, why'd you, why'd you want to go to Iowa? And I'm like, I'm so glad I went because there was, we were the only, there was no one was there was into metal. It was a, a huge fraternity scene and anything heavy, but they had like heavy bands come through at a, a place called Gabe's. There was like great, great bands coming through. Um, and then like great alt rock college bands, like poster children bands like that. that were really cool. Like in that, like influenced by the pixies. And, and I mentioned them before, but those kinds of bands that were coming through, like we had great bands coming through that were super inspiring and got to meet all of them and open for them. And um, we opened for like Guster and then like, Z- remember, you know, Guster's still around. They got a career like, uh, so it was just a weird melting pot of stuff that we never fit into until the end. And then of course we broke up and everyone was mad and got girlfriends and then we graduated and we didn't realize what, you know, how great we had had it for the last, those last three years. So. But isn't that always the case kind of, of when, when you're in that stuff? Do you start doing comedy at Iowa? No, I know that I'm going to go into TV and comedy writing and producing always because I do. And honestly, this isn't like a cool thing to say. It's because my I've always been around TV and I knew and I and I knew I knew it. And honestly, the biggest not the biggest the second reason, I did not want to wear a suit or ever dress up to go to work. Oh yeah. I I that was honestly one of my main factors. I took a million career tests. My parents were very, you know, concerned that I like didn't have a focus. And I always knew that I would be fine and I always knew that I would find my way and I would do it with music and with comedy and TV and all these things. And I'm one of the lucky ones because it takes luck, but also because I was always focused uh, on that I would do all those things. And every manager or agent or person who was giving you career advice would try to put you in a box and say, this is what you need to do. And um, uh, I don't think any of those people, even though they have their value, it's always up to the individual. And my individual plan was I will do all these things and I will have control over my own career, uh, even if it limits, limits me somehow or... Um, you know, hold, you know, holds me back in some way where I could have had something bigger uh, because oh, I'm not going to work with that person because they might be talented, but they're a dick or I'm not going to take that job because um, there's not like it's not the kind of comedy I want. Like I, I was very particular and specific. And um, I think college is that jumping off point, knowing like I don't have to worry about that now because I'll be fine once the bell rings and I graduate. And I, and I was although I did dabble in education for a minute. And I made a lot of uh, uh, people over 50 laugh. That was, I was still wearing khakis and um, going down to city hall uh, in, in New York. And that was, that was, that was not long for that world, but I was, I, I really felt very prepped and primed for the real world by knowing it was going to be the real world. It never came as a shock to me. So I was, I was, I produced myself, if you will. God bless me. Thank you. God bless you. On September 27, 1986, during the European leg of Metallica's Damage Incorporated tour, members drew cards to determine which bunks on the tour bus they would sleep in. Cliff Burton won and chose to sleep in Kirk Hammett's bunk. 
At around sunrise near a small village in Sweden, the bus driver lost control of the vehicle and the bus overturned several times. Ulrich, Hammett, and Hetfield sustained no serious injuries. However, bassist Cliff Burton was pinned under the bus and died. Burton's death left Metallica's future in doubt. The three remaining members decided Burton would want them to carry on, and with the Burton family's blessings, the band sought a replacement. Roughly 40 people, including Kirk Hammett's childhood friend Les Claypool of Primus, auditioned for the band. The band finally decided on Jason Newsted from Flotsam and Jetsam as Burton's replacement, and Newsted's first live performance with Metallica was at the Country Club in Reseda. Great old club. The members initiated Newsted by tricking him into eating a ball of wasabi. Metallica's first album without Burton and Justice for All was released in 1988. The album was a commercial success, reaching number six on the Billboard 200 and was certified platinum nine weeks after its release. The video for the song One went into heavy rotation on MTV and Metallica was off to the races. That was also around the time that I saw them at Alpine Valley, Wisconsin on the Monsters of Rock tour with Van Halen. The Scorpions and Kingdom Come and Dokken. See, your generation says Van Hagar. Come on, guys. <laughs> Enough. This is, I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I want, we've got, we've got to do a generations roundtable because I, I mean, I've, I told you, I've listened to a bunch of episodes of this. I've listened to a bunch of episodes of your podcast and I really do enjoy it. I am, pro, am I the youngest person who's done this? Like, uh, you, you, you are not, sir. What? Y- okay. You are not. I actually had two of my very young LA uh, comedy friends, uh, Steve Nelson and Leah, Leah Lamar, and I brought them on to listen to Deep Purple, knowing that they had never, ever heard Deep Purple in their life. Okay, but to be fair, yes. you win. But to be fair, I'm the youngest like metalhead person that's been on yes. the show. I, I, I so, believe you're correct, sir. So it's so interesting. And again, I'll, I'm, I'll make it very brief, but the, gener- the gaps between the, conver- the conversations I have about favorite albums and favorite time periods of the band. It's such a, it's the admiration and shared uh, affection for the bands is burning hot always between me and whoever I'm having that conversation with, but the class warfare and the divisions on the favorite albums and eras are like unbelievable. It's even like goes back to cock rock. I love, you know, yeah, everyone hates theater of pain, like shot at the devil. And I'm like, yeah, but the Dr. Feel good tour is when Motley Crue looked the best and actually sounded the best. And they're like, what? I'm like, what do you mean? What? Like, I'm not saying that's my favorite record, but they're like, well, and then anthrax, you know, Scott, you know, it's always, he'll always be like, you like state of euphoria the best. And I'm like, yes. And he's like, well, like not among the living or I mean, I could even say persistence of time. And he would probably respect that and be more into that because they had more time with that record. So now we come to Justice for all the record that my generation, I don't even care about one because it's overplayed and it was so in your face at the time. It was, all about double kicks and putting double kicks. The most mainstream double kick song beside before Red Hot, I think, because Red Hot by Motley Crue, um, even though it wasn't that song in particular, wasn't a big single. Um, it wasn't big enough for the band, you know, to be like, "Whoa, this is what '83 is too fast for love." And that's uh, and that's uh, that song is ripping, and there's big double kicks you can hear right clean in the mix, and then one becomes a chart buster because of the video. And then you do you hear the you hear the fucking bridge, and the kicks come in, and people can't believe it. 
they can't like people are like, whoa, what's that? And at that time, that was when the mainstream first heard, I think, double bass properly. When they fir- when the world first heard double bass and knew what it was, not like Ginger Baker, not like um, uh, uh, Keith Moon or like you know bombastic double basses, even like you know Alex Van Halen. <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't. But the mix, the mix for Alex Van Halen was never about the kicks. Mm-hmm. Like Hot for Teacher can be played on a single kick, and also there's that roll in the electronic aspect of that because it's he's playing some electronic some trigger pads. He's still playing it, but like where the sounds come from because it's overlaid. You know, like there's there's electronic sounds overlaid the drums. I'm talking about pure like like it's fucking relentless. It's heavy metal and it's on the radio and it's on MTV. Yep. Like that to me was like, all right, everyone, you have to listen now. And this isn't an underground thing. And that's why justice for me is not puppets like what was for everyone else. And, you know, you have Cliff. I, I love Cliff, but I think about Newstead up there and I love Robert because he has suicidal tendencies and he has infectious grooves and he rips and he's a finger player like Cliff. But then you see Newstead up there, the guy who's like thrashing his face off, underrated fucking background vocalist. And on this justice tour with this crumbling statue, with this intense, ridiculously long set list, the binge and purge fucking uh, the Seattle show for the justice tour. That is so underrated. And that set list is ripping. And they are, at, I, I still think black album. They're in their peak as a, as a band, as a, but justice is the rawest and they are the most in tune with what's happening because that, that word of mouth grew because of the video and not just the video, but because people in the underground scene and metal were sh- fucking showing up to arenas and I had just missed that because for me, it wasn't seeing the justice tour at Poplar Creek because I was a little too young. My parents were like, you can't go to that one. I'm still mad about it, but they let me go to so many <laughs> other things that my therapy has become less so because of all the other shows they let me see. But it becomes the black album at Rosemount Horizon in Chicago when they're firing on all cylinders. They're in the round. They have the whole classic catalog right there that is from Kill 'em from Kill 'em All through Black Album. That to me is the classic, you know, the 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 proper encyclopedia of the band, um, that that's that's classified as classic. So, my my but justice, man, I just it's so it's and the mix is fucking awesome. I don't care what anyone says. You know, I've heard the bass and other remastered versions of it, remix versions. But holy shit, man, I there's so many songs and there's it's, it was such a great tour and such a great time and they looked awesome. Their clothes are awesome. It was bare bones. God damn, I could talk about it forever. But God bless that album and that's in the Damage Justice tour. Let me say this uh, quickly about the Monsters of Rock tour. I, I'm still not over David Lee Roth leaving Van Halen in 1985. Of course you're not. I know how old you are. It, it hurt me, and it hurt my ability to get a job. Okay. <laughs> oh no, my, worse than my parents' uh, divorce. So on that Monsters of Rock show at Alpine Valley, which for people who don't know, it's where the metalheads from Milwaukee meet the metalheads from Chicago, and all hell breaks loose. Metallica. It wasn't even about winning the day. Metalheads from Milwaukee and Chicago showed up for Metallica. Yep. Van Hagar and the Scorpions were all wearing Benetton. And here are these guys in just jeans and t-shirts and just fucking at the top of their game, just killing it. Poor Dokken 
Poor Kingdom Come. I mean, it was, oh, yeah. it was one of my favorite. It was one of my favorite things ever. And I'll never forget standing in line at the at the concession stand and watching a young metalhead from either Milwaukee or Chicago uh, just dying in line and no one really caring. You have talked about the Black Album many times. So let's, as we're rounding third base here, let me just say. In October of 1990, Metallica entered a one-on-one recording studio in North Hollywood to record its next album. Bob Rock, who has worked with Aerosmith, The Cult, Bon Jovi, and Motley Crue, was hired as the producer. Metallica, also known as The Black Album, was remixed three times, cost a million bucks to make, and ended three marriages. Although the release date was delayed until 1991, Metallica debuted at number one in 10 countries, selling 650,000 units in the U.S. during its first week, and it was certified 16 times platinum in this country. The tour in support of that record, called the Wherever We May Roam Tour, lasted 14 months and included dates in the U.S., Japan, and the U.K., uh, my quick story, it's not even a story with a beginning, middle, and end, on January 6th, 1982, or 1992, rather, at the Great Western Forum, Brendan Smith went with Bill Catlin and Brent Olson, and for some reason, I decided to do acid by myself. And on that tour, kids listening to the podcast, Metallica had this video screen up in the middle, of, it was in the round, they had this huge video screen that captured all sides of the stadium. They had a live feed from backstage, and it was basically Lars and James saying, hey, guys, we're going to come out there in a couple minutes, <laughs> and we're going to kick your ass. And I thought they meant me, and they were singling me out to come out and kick my ass because I was tripping. I believed that that was the case, so I was in terror for about a half an hour when the show started. As we were leaving, I thought that Metallica had told all of the young metalheads in Southern California to go attack the city. And as we were all walking across the parking lot, I think that I thought again in my trip that that's what we were all going to do. And what was hallucinogenics at a metal show? I know it was so ridiculous. Well, I was that guy. I was that guy in the early nineties. I haven't done any of that stuff since Jerry Garcia died. But you know, back then I thought I was like cool guy who could handle that kind of stuff, no matter what the situation. Brave. It, it's ridiculous to do it alone. And it's ridiculous to do it at a Metallica show, <laughs> but, but it was the black album and it was the biggest fucking thing. As you have said a few times in this podcast, Holy Christ, black album all day long. It was, I, I saw it at the horizon. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I got, who did I see? I know I got, my parents are really great about letting me go the horizon. They felt safe dropping me off for shows. They took me to like Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, handful other shows. Horizon was like good enough for them. They were like, they could sit there. There was like good seats. It wasn't like a pit. Um, and my dad had a hookup with the promoter through doing, he's a, my dad was, uh, was a sports play by play guy in Chicago. Oh, um, and he did a lot of, uh, blue demons, uh, play by play bulls pregame, a lot of stuff, a sports channel. And he was really good. And, um, just a sports nut and obsessive with it, but also love music. And, and he's, all, he's in the still to this day is like uh, really follows sports and does all, all these uh, really has all the stats still lodged firmly in his head and knows everything that's going on. But he knew all these guys, like guys who like worked with horizon. So that's how I got tickets to see all these great shows. And usually my mom would take me or, and like bring like a friend or like their mom would come. I think it was 
me, Craig Ory, his mom, Norma, and my mom at uh, the Hysteria Tour, Def Leppard in the Round, which is one of my greatest shows I've ever seen. But wow. that Black Album Tour, we had like this similar seats on the side. And um, I just, I, I, at this moment, I do forget who I went with. But that that show and in the round, again, remember, I'd seen, I'd seen Def Leppard do it first. But it was this is a band. Not every band can do it because they don't know how to play to the crowd in that situation. But Metallica is pretty much stuck with an in the round thing since since Black Album, and they kind of you know own own that, and they've done that on you know Death Ma- Death Magnetic, not Binge and Purge. I don't think that summer tour they did, which is pretty much what you're saying before the Wherever We May Roam tour. What? How many months did you say it was? Eighteen. Fourteen. If you tack on the binge and purge, yeah. I think it's longer, and that's really the same era, right? Because um, which is so brutal, but it is two. It's considered two tours, but it's brutal. But that black album, it, it was just. I mean, I remember when it came out. I remember getting the 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 cassette. I remember like waiting for it at a midnight release, and I remember like being like, "Oh, th- this isn't Metallica now." But I wasn't. Remember, I wasn't. Again, you were raised with Kill 'Em All. I. I came on it with Garage Garage Days We Revisited, and then those are covers, and then worked forwards and then had to go backwards in a short amount of time because I consumed the whole catalog ravenously. But that Black Album tour, they were doing that set list was flawless, and they did all of it. I mean, now it's just like now you want to go even deeper because you're older and they're older, so it's always like when they're still very good about dipping into the B-sides and we're going to play Orion. You know what I mean? Like they don't. They show a lot of respect to the fans, and they always have um, with the with the changing of the the setless nightly here and there, small things, and then the tours really mixing it up as they get older and the fans get older and bring younger fans with them. So, but the Black Album, as much as it's like a Spinal Tap, like you know, cliche, half joke, not a joke, it is a defining album uh, in looks when you were buying. Uh, you know, long boxes or cassettes and and seeing or vinyl and just seeing that big black album there and just just tilting the vinyl or the CD or the cassette enough to see the snake to know it wasn't the Spinal Tap record, which I get confused with all the time in my collection. I'm like, oh, I pulled the wrong pulled the wrong one, but um, it was awesome. And honestly, when I think about it, they evolved their look uh, a little less streety and ratty um, from Justice, and they just polished it with black and simplicity and it, it just all came together on that on that tour and um i'm so glad i saw it and i can't believe how the younger metal fans now when i tell them i saw it can't believe that i saw it right. you know what i mean like they can't believe i was there and i'm just like well i'm still mad i missed the damage justice tour and they're like they can't even fathom that but you guys got to see puppets and you got to see metallica open which I'm very envious of. But, but that, that, that is that is the way. That's I'm the way. Jealous, I'm jealous of people that got to see Led Zeppelin. I'm jealous. That's, not, that's beyond. You know, I'm jealous of people that got to see Queen in the back in the day because by the time I get to eighth ninth grade, America's turned its back on Queen. You know what I mean? There's, there's always isn't like, that so yeah. offensive? It's yeah. so offensive. But Can I just say one thing? Before, yes. I just want to say one very up. quick thing. Yeah. Well, a quick wrap up for me. Besides. It's not like the summation for me. I just want to give, when we were talking about bands for, for this episode, my friends, all my good friends, metal friends know how I feel about Megadeth. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to say, not that anyone gives two fucks, but I just want to say how fucking special and how amazing Dave Mustaine and Megadeth are and how 
essential that how there would be i don't think i mean lars is the driving force behind metallica's success if you don't have lars you don't have metallica if you don't have james you don't have metallica you could argue cliff um and and, and really any member um uh kirk of course rob you know it's obviously he came later but just showing respect i want to say that but i'll just say for for dave mustaine and his talent and uh the fact that i'm glad that dave mustaine got kicked out of metallica because megadeth uh, and honestly in in this day for me as a as a where i am in life i do put on megadeth more because i fiend it more even though i'm still very upset about the remixed and remastered versions which i have to go to my um cds or rips from cds because you can't get that stuff though i hear rumors that they might come out i just i'm obsessed with megadeth and obsessed with what they did for thrash and production and songwriting and there's so many nick menza one of the most underrated if not the most underrated modern metal drummer of all time you know trained by louis belson and marty friedman and ellison and those guys rust in peace for me honestly i if i I still say I have to put Rust in Peace with, right up there with Justice, if honestly not above it. Um, Metallica, the catalog is wider for me, but I'll just say Megadeth. I'm just, I'm so floored by them how fucking dangerous Megadeth was scary. I mean, they were scary. You know, they, they, the drugs they were doing were scary and they were doing all of them and the music was scarier and darker. And I, and I just have big respect, big, big respect for Megadeth and so glad that the bands went their separate ways and now have come back together, at least to be cordial, and if, if not friends. So those two bands, so important and so essential. God bless. Well, Pete Best did not go on to found the Rolling Stones. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's a huge... <laughs> you don't get Megadeth in Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. If he doesn't get kicked out of Metallica, and that's one of my favorite things about that fucking movie. You can see uh, how angry he is in the movie. Oh, yeah. You can see he's so raw. I mean, he stopped. What did, did Dave stop being angry? Maybe like right before the, the, the big four, you know, like when he was like realized that he was part of that. He was part of that group. You know, we could have a whole episode on, on the big four and what the big four thrash bands meet and ranking them. But how cool that like when you saw all of them together, thank God they did that tour. Oh and yeah, Megadeth, and I think Dave realized, like, yeah, everyone, like, you are respected and loved. Do you have the success that Metallica had commercially? No, who gives a fuck? You mean that day that guy in that band means so much to so many people, and um, I just you can't talk about Metallica without talking about Dave Mustaine and Megadeth. Incredibly well said, sir. Is there anything you want to promote as we close it out here on the BrandoCast today? Well, I just want to say that this podcast is great. I love the variety of guests you're having, and I love that you're paying respect to metal um, and, of course, other genres I know that you that you care about so much. And um, I'm curious to see how it evolves, and I'm going to keep uh, keep checking that out. And uh, my anyone wants to follow me on Instagram, um, it's mostly posting about the drummers that I book on the on Late Night with Seth Myers. It's uh, at ERX11, and it's also a lot of shit with my dog. And uh, then I keep the private stuff uh, to myself for the most part. And there's no emo shit. There's no crying. Maybe some birthday shout outs here and there, but nothing about my feelings. So you should check it out. It's a uh, emo free zone and uh, you'll be uh, uh, overwhelmed with um, uh, monotony really once you, once you follow me and I don't do Twitter because it's a cesspool of, uh, of Jew haters. So, uh, <laughs> I don't fucking, I don't do it. <laughs> what Metallica song can we play us out with today? I think we're just going to do blackened and we're just, we're just going to, we're going to rip it out. And man, we're just going to, God, to open 
to open with that level of ferociousness. And then they open and they open that damage justice tour with that song too. And I've had so many dreams and imagine myself being on seeing that tour and have and knowing that feeling, which is missing for all of us right now. The feeling when the lights go down and you're about to see a loud fucking band and you're smart enough to not look up the set list. And then they give you that song that you want. That's um, maybe the weird song that, or the heavy song that's not a single from the new record uh, on the on the current tour that they're on. And then they play it. And I cannot wait till we get back to that time, hopefully uh, next year at some point. But whenever whenever it comes, it will happen. And Blacken does give me all those feelings. So uh, let's do it. Well, I can't wait for people to hear this podcast because all you did today, sir, was fucking crush it. So, God bless you, man. Thanks for big, having me. Big devil horns to you. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening, liking, subscribing. We're growing exponentially. A lot of great guests coming down the pike, as always. And, of course, the BrandoCast is produced by Richard Sheltinga. So, until the next time, cats and kittens. 